Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. On today's show, it's a special episode. It was De La Soul Day when we recorded this. This was my best friend, Will, from fourth grade, and I was on my way up to L.A. driving. I called him. We hopped on a and did a podcast. So I want to thank you for bearing with us. There are a few little glitches in the audio. Sometimes it kind of comes in and out. Very, very little, um, but I could not... Um, let this episode go by. This is such an incredible conversation of two men who have been friends for over 40 years and uh, have lived our lives together. And the soundtrack of our lives has been De La Soul. And we had the opportunity to record this on De La Soul Day, where they recorded their or where they released their entire catalog. So I'm so excited to be able to share this with you. This is my best friend in the world, Mr. Will Simmons. And again, I appreciate you understanding that there's a few little tiny audio glitches, but I thought that you would forgive us for that. And uh, please, as always, check out all of our sponsors. Um, Do exactly what you know to do. Uh, Share the episode. And I want to thank each and every one of you for helping us to get in the top 1% globally as far as all podcasts. And it's not because of paid advertisement or paid marketing. It's because each and every one of you sharing and watching and listening to the podcast. I am forever grateful. Enjoy the show. What up? Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast, where attitude is everything. On today's show, I have my best friend, hero from fourth grade that you most of you hear about all the time, but you've never met. He is the man. He is one of the most eclectic guys that I've ever met in my entire life, and he is the one that has introduced me in 1989 to something that absolutely changed my life and that we are celebrating today, which is De La Soul. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Will Simmons. Hey, thank you so much for the wonderful, wonderful introduction and uh, shout out to De La Soul. Hey, tell me what this day means, man. Like, you know, um, I wanted to, we've never done one like this. I'm actually driving to L.A. right now, but it's De La Soul Day. What is De La Soul Day and why, what does it mean to you? Uh, it means quite a bit. Uh, you know, it's a, a hip-hop group that uh, came out. I think I was probably like maybe 13 at the time. Uh, really connected with their music. They were very different. Their style was different. Um, their lyrics were different. Uh, just how they approached hip-hop was different. And I, I just always developed a... a, a just a really strong connection. And, uh, you know, uh, being an adult now and, and knowing their struggles in the industry and, you know, how they, you know, never really were paid for all the amazing music they made. You know, they made their money off of touring. And, uh, you know, to see this day come and uh, their entire catalog is now available on streaming and De La Soul has the, the rights to their, their masters and they own their music again is it, just such an amazing, amazing thing and it's just so unfortunate that uh 
Dave uh, passed away. Uh, Dave from De La Soul passed away before he could see this day uh, come to fruition because it's been a long time coming. I get chills right when you started talking about that. What it was? Uh, what was the song that I just sent over to you? It was a Japanese song that they released on Balloon Mind State. In my opinion, Balloon Mind is the greatest album that they've ever put out. I, I could listen to it from top to bottom. In addition to every other album that they have, I could listen to top to bottom. But Balloon Mind State hits hard for me. But talk to me about uh, them releasing uh, an album that a lot or a, a record that a lot of people wouldn't even understand. But they kept doing this over and over again, not caring about how it would hit. But they just wanted to make great music for their audience. Yeah. They were the best. They never compromised uh, their creativity. They never compromised uh, their beliefs. Uh, they never compromised their production. They had weird beats. They chose interesting subject matter. They didn't care. They were just true to hip hop, true to their creativity. And uh, yeah, that's why I will always love them as a band. Connect with your life as for me, you know, my style of dress and for you know you know and i know my style of dress wasn't chosen it, it was because you know i, I couldn't uh, uh even make it to the bx or to miller's <laughs> outpost <laughs> but my style my, my style of dress my whole style of life for me was de la because it was completely completely being yourself so how about with yourself like with you why did you connect to it at such a high level and how did you come in contact with the the most revolutionary uh i believe hip-hop uh album ever in three feet high and rising when you did <laughs> uh i think it came upon it uh watching uh yo mtv raps on a saturday morning uh the me myself and i video came on and i immediately uh fell in love with that song it was the greatest and uh you know just uh, for me, uh, being uh, the person that I am, uh, uh, not really having a fear of, of standing out and, and, you know, always being myself, uh, I always connected with the, their weirdness because I've always felt weird. You know, I have a, a lot of interests. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a dork. I'm also kind of cool. <laughs> and that's kind of how I view De La Soul. You know, that's like they're cool nerds and so am I. And I relate. So when you say, uh, like, when I said eclectic and then you said eclectic and you said uh, a dork or cool or whatever, like, talk to me and, and help people to understand, like, set the tone for where you were in your life when you heard De La the first time. Because, like, I, I, it was on Orion that you were living at the time. Am I correct? Yeah. 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 So, on Orion. But set the stage. When you say that you were weird, how could somebody connect to that or you know, uh, what would like give some context to it? Uh, it's just basically, you know, being a 13 year old kid and being your own person and not following the crowd. I never did. I never, you know, was someone who, uh, caved to peer pressure. I never was someone who went with the crowd. I always did my own shit and I never had a fear of that. And, you know, I kind of view, uh, De La Soul's approach to music as the same way I kind of approach my life. Being where do you think that, myself. Where do you think that that confidence came from and the permission? Because a lot of people are waiting for permission, really, to be themselves. 
or to step out and do a little something different or go against the crowd. And sometimes that crowd was me because I was trying to get you to do some stupid stuff, doorbell ditching, throwing water balloons at people, eggs at houses, things like that, that I was trying to get you to do. And you were just like, no, nah, I'm cool. I'm still going to stay cool, but I'm just not going to do that. So, so what gave you, what gave you that permission, that confidence to tell your best friend in the world that you're not hanging out and you're not going to do these things. And by the way, you, you would tell me I was a bonehead while I was doing it. Too. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, just a, uh, you know, part of my character that I've always had. And, you know, it's not uh, something that I've ever shied away from. Uh, you know, like if people are doing dumb shit, uh, <laughs> I never felt a need to uh, involve myself. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you dumbasses were getting in trouble. And I was at home uh, reading comic books and uh, opening baseball cards. You know, like, <laughs> what, what's better? Well, well, sometimes the getting in trouble is kind of fun. Uh, but but who, who were who were those bumpers for you? I mean, was it mom? Was it dad? Where, I mean, was it was it a strict kind of upbringing for you? Because, no, I, mean, I, I think for me, uh, you know, my parents, um, they kind of uh, <laughs> gave me a lot of freedom, uh, like too much freedom. Uh, I had so much freedom <laughs> that I was afraid to to like push it because I didn't know what was going to happen. It was it was like reverse psychology, you know. I was like one the one kid that like didn't have a curfew. And like, you know, not that I would ever be out in the streets, but like, you know, like my parents, you know, really um, utilized a, a really interesting tactic to where, you know, I had a lot of freedom. Uh, I, I had a lot of responsibility that came with that freedom. And I think that's why I was always afraid, afraid to like toe the line and really push it. Because I didn't know if there would be a line. Like I was always afraid to like, you know, <laughs> you know, test their limits. So when we got involved, like when you, I remember the day when I came over to the Orion house and you were really excited. I believe you were wearing a suit at the time and some Nike revolutions. Um, right. And uh, the, the legs were zipped off the Vila suit too, because and it was, they were, uh, they were size 13 uh, revolutions and I was five, five. <laughs> did you, did you wear a size 13 at that time? Hell no. I wore like an eight and a half, dude. So tell us about the 13s that you were wearing then. Uh, it was the first real pair of shoes I ever owned. You know, what are you like, talking I, was, about? I, was, I, was, I always had whack shoes. You guys, you, you were broke as hell, but you had Jordans. Like, <laughs> I never had real shoes. Like, you always had real shoes. I had like some stadia and some fake ass, bootleg ass knockoff stuff. And, and that was tell like us the about. One, one opportunity I had to get a real pair of shoes and they only so had tell one me, pair left. Tell me about the experience, like set the tone for when you and your dad go to the store to get you those revolutions. Well, we didn't go to the store to get revolutions at all. Like that wasn't a part of it. So you need to, you know, I need to correct you there. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> our revolutions were not on the menu that day uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, what, uh, <laughs> what took place was like, just me just harassing my dad about getting this pair of shoes. And, uh, you know, finally he got sick of me and, uh, relented and they literally only had one pair left. And that one pair was size 13. 
And like, I would at that time, I don't know, I was like maybe a size nine, maybe a nine and a half. So like these shoes were like ridiculously huge. And uh, it was like I was wearing clown, clown shoes. But I wanted a real pair of shoes, my first real pair of Nikes, because I'd never had one in my life. And, you know, I was willing to look like Ronald McDonald to do it. <laughs> so it. you I'm have, right okay, so I remember you have the Air Revolutions on, you got the feel of suits, kind of satin. I roll, I roll into the house. I was always jealous of you because... I wasn't jealous in a bad way. I was jealous, like all my friends, rich. He's he's got air revolutions, and he's oh, got a geez. satin a satin feel of suit. And I I roll into the house, and you're like, yo, you need to listen to this song. But I don't even think you had the tape at the time or the CD because CDs weren't around. So I think how, I I I, VH, I VHS recorded the video or something. Oh my gosh. Because it was in that back room on the Orion house. Yep. Okay, and so this, let's, let's talk about this because with with Dela, and we're celebrating Dela Soul Day today, they released their whole entire catalog. If you're not a Dela Soul fan, I tell you, go and listen. This is some of the most groundbreaking music that I have ever experienced. But it opened our mind to a whole different thing called the native tongue. Can you talk about that, Willie? and what it opened our brain to, you know, to be able to be exposed to. Well, uh, you know, one of the, the coolest things about the whole, you know, native tongue conglomeration, uh, which is uh, basically De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, the Jungle Brothers, leaders of the new school, um, was that they brought a very forward thinking, <laughs> progressive, and black positivity vibe. I think I lost Willie for a second, but he was talking about the, uh, the positivity vibe uh, to uh, the native tongue. And Tribe Called Quest, I mean, again, brown, groundbreaking. A lot more people hear about uh, Tribe Called Quest than they hear about Daylon. So we're going to try and get Willie back on the line here, here in a second, because I believe that we lost him. Willie, are you there? Yeah, are you oh, there, yeah, Willie? I lost you there for a second. Yeah, I'm here. Hold up. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Are you on Boost Mobile right now or what? Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure are what you, are, there. Are you Are you on Boost Mobile? Is that what it is, Willie? Um, no. <laughs> you were you were just talking about the um, the positivity movement, the black positivity movement from the native tongue. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just think that was a, a amazing and uh, overlooked aspect of uh, native tongues and de la souls. They were talking about things that like no one was really talking about at the time. And uh, they had a very diverse audience, you know, <laughs> reciting lyrics uh, about black positivity, you know, like white kids, Asian kids, boys and girls were all, you know, singing songs about black positivity. And I don't think that they fully realized, 
you know, they were just going with the beat and enjoying some lyrics, but they were spreading that uh, black positivity. So shout outs. What did that, what did that mean to you? Because before that, there wasn't a lot of that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of lyrical content that way. And it wasn't a message that was out, you know, really any, anywhere that you were seeing. And it was amazing for me because with Dela, one of the big reasons why I connected, like I talked about earlier was I always felt like an outcast for me growing up because I didn't, I, I didn't fit in a particular box. Right. So right. I, I, I didn't for me, you know, I played sports, but I, I wasn't a standout. I, I, you know, as far as fashion wise, I, I got what I got. And I <laughs> because we didn't have the resources to be able to get the stuff everybody else had. You did um, have some Jordans, though. I did have some Jordan. My parents saved up. Shout out to uh, Tom and Jackie Cardenas, Mama and Pops. Shout out. And you remember, too, Willie, my pop at the time. Are you are you uh, uh, filing your feet right now? Is that what you're doing? Willie? <laughs> That's right. I'm tending to are some you... uh, domestic duties. <laughs> I'm multitasking. So, it sounds like you're uh, emery boarding those corns on your feet is what uh, it maybe is. Maybe I am. <laughs> but my, my pops was making $1,100 a month, and we lived in that double-wide mobile home. You remember that? Yep. And me and my brother went to uh, mom and pops and said, hey, we need Jordans to play basketball. And at the time, the Jordans were $125. And my parents saved up enough money to be able to buy us both the Jordans in one month. So that's over $250 of their income of $1,100 before taxes. And they spent it on Jordans. Do you think this was a good investment, Willie? Uh, in their children's happiness, yes. <laughs> it's amazing because I look at it now and, you know, I, I don't realize the stresses that my parents were going through during the time. Yeah. Let's talk about that aspect because, you know, you and I, we basically lived in the same house growing <laughs> up, whether it was whether it was your house or whether it was mine. True that. But what uh, what perspective shift have you had since now you're a parent? And you have stresses that sometimes you don't even want to communicate to your kids. Hmm. Well, you know, I think uh, something I learned from my parents is that, you know, you want to kind of protect your kids and shield your kids from, you know, uh, certain challenges uh, that impact, you know, uh, moms and dads. But I think uh, transparency and honesty is also a, a big part of that. You know, like, I I just try to be straight up and honest with my kids. You know, I try not to pull the wool over their eyes or, you know, not tell them the truth of things. What do you realize now that your parents were going through or that they were experiencing? Because, again, like you and I, I mean, we were knuckleheads. We were making pancakes. Uh, 70 pancakes, eating two of them, uh, leaving the batter on the uh, counter, putting the pancakes in the microwave and just not cleaning up after ourselves. And, you know, like we didn't re like for me, I didn't realize what our parents were going through. No. What what do you see now? What do you see clearer now looking back and saying, wow, this is what my parents, you know, were experiencing 
I mean, for me, I think I would have been a little bit more uh, sensitive. I probably wouldn't have asked for those Jordans while we were living in a double wide mobile home on the side of the freeway, 40 miles away from our, uh, from our uh, high school with, with one car. I probably wouldn't ask for those Jordans now if I looked at it the way I look at it now. Yeah. I think uh, I would have definitely been more appreciative in the moment of, of my, my circumstances. You know, I look back on it and I feel very lucky, you know, to be raised in, in, in a, a place that we were raised and, uh, you know, have the means, you know, and, not, and never, my parents always had us in a situation where we never had to worry. Even when yeah. things were hard, you know, they, you know, always uh, were able to, you know, keep things uh, moving forward and in the right direction. What was the hardest time that you remember as a kid because I from my viewpoint here was my best friend Will he had all the uh, name brand Star Wars figures I had like Han Solo's brother and cousin um, I had uh, Han Solo's uh, cousin's vehicle um, and it wasn't the Millennium Falcon it was like the <laughs> it was like the off-brand one um, I, I saw you having the Transformers the real ones I had not only the guy, I didn't even have the GoBots. I had the Zybots that didn't transform. They just, you just, it was a boat and then you flipped it over and it was a car. You know what I'm <laughs> <laughs> What was some of the toughest times that maybe you didn't talk about to your friends or, you know, uh, that you went through at, during those times of that, you know, fourth to sixth grade? Uh, like in all honesty, I don't think that they were any different than anyone else's. You know, just uh, the the day to day. You know, just you know, your parents would uh, at times, you know, have moments. They might argue a little bit, but you know, I don't think that anything really rose to the level of uh, being that kind of narrative. What's the greatest? What's the what's some of the funniest memories that you have? Now, both of us lost our mom. I mean. You, you lost your mom, and then I think uh, it was a year and a half later um, visit your mom and party. Oh, that's right. What are some, what are some of the funniest experiences with you and your mom? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is when she made me catch a pelican at the baseball <laughs> field because she swore that it was sick. And uh, set, the, set the stage here, man. So the, how old are oh, you? Man. How old are you? What what happened? I think it was probably 13. And uh, I had a summer league baseball game. And when the game was over, you know, the players have to come in and break the field and prepare it uh, for the following day's game. And while we were doing that, this huge pelican uh, lands on the field. And we, we weren't near the ocean. So it was, it's a little odd. You don't see a pelican inland very often. And my mom was waiting for me to finish so she could take me home. And she sees the pelican. She's like, oh, that pelican must be sick. We, we, I think we need to catch it. So she drives us home. Uh, she makes me grab a, <laughs> a laundry <laughs> hamper and a, a bed sheet. And we go back to the field, and 
I spent an hour chasing this pelican and I'm sure it was looking at me like, why is this human child chasing me? And, you know, I eventually tired him out and I tackled him <laughs> with a bed sheet. <laughs> I wrapped him up and I put him in this, uh, this laundry hamper and we put in the trunk of our hatchback and take it home. And my mom's like, all right, um, put it in the bathroom. So I put water in the bathtub and then I haul this giant bird into the bathroom and I unwrap the sheet and it just like unfurls its wings and just starts going ape shit and like destroying the bathroom. Squawking <laughs> and just tearing everything up. I like run out and shut the door and it's just like, there's like a monster in the bathroom. That's what it sounds like. Just banging and things breaking. <laughs> My dad gets home and he hears the ruckus. He's like, what, you know, what's happening? What's going on? And I was like, uh, mom made me put a pelican in the bathroom. And he's just like the look on his face of uh, disgust and sheer disappointment. Like, I still feel it. I still, uh, the shame, I can still feel that same shame as I did in that moment. So finally, uh, my mom calls animal control and they show up. And my mom's like, yeah, so uh, we have a sick pelican. Uh, and they're like, okay, where is it at? And she's like, it's in our bathroom. And the dude looked at her and was like, why? And just shook his head. <laughs> I'm the king of bad comparisons. But I think that there's a comparison here. Your mom was one of the most groundbreaking individuals that I've ever met in my entire life. Your mom exposed me to things and helped me to see a perspective of the world that I had never seen in my entire life. And she did this not not by not ever by like saying I'm going to teach you a lesson, but just in her regular normal as an example of it, the connection point and I'm going to the, this connection point your mom and when we started off talking about De La Soul being so groundbreaking, talk about the, the, the similarities between two, because for me, I see your mom as that in my life, just like I saw De La as that in my musical life. Oh, sure. Yeah, my mom was unapologetically an individual. She was herself all the time, you know, and like she didn't hide it. You know, she was uh, a person that could express a vast array of emotions uh, and she didn't hide her feelings and she was who she was. She loved what? people. She loved animals and she didn't give a shit who knew. And yeah, I, that's what made her such a, a fun and awesome person. Well, and your mom, your mom brought people together like I've never seen. Yeah. I mean, and, and when we were talking, when you were talking about De La earlier, you were talking about there was certain demographics of people that were singing lyrics that they didn't even know what the lyrics were, but they were loving the beat. And it helped them to be more conscious of things that they wouldn't have been conscious of. Yeah. Your mom, your mom did the same thing at Thursday dinner, Tuesday dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Can you, can you talk about that? And then please a segue into Uncle Bump Bump and where he got his name. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I think uh, my mom has always kind of been a, a beacon and a light that would lead people to her and people from all walks of life. Um, you know, she was a friend of everyone. She was a friend of, of humankind. And uh, she definitely did have a gift of bringing people together. Uh, you know, we, we broke <laughs> bread with, you know, we had Muslims and Jews <laughs> having dinner at the same table. We had, you know, you name it. Like, it's, yeah. It was, it was an amazing experience and to see that growing up. And a lot of how I interact with people and how I feel about humans in general all come from uh, the lessons I learned from my mom, as well as my ability to uh, forge and maintain long-term friendships. You know, those are all things that I learned from her. And it's, it's invaluable because I reap the benefits of, you know, the amazing relationships that I've created on a daily basis. I think when I explain people, or when I explain to people, when I try and explain my friend Will, they can't understand the depth of what I'm talking about. They'll be like, yeah, I've got a friend too. But I'm saying like, I've never seen someone as eclectic of friendships and the depth of friendships as what you have. I'm very fortunate because I've got, I got a chance to be in on the ground level from, I mean, I was in fourth grade, you were in fifth grade. And right. we, met, we met through a friend. And most of the time when you meet through a friend, you're not as close with the friend that you meet through a friend. And I <laughs> met you, right? And yeah. you meet somebody and you'll be like, oh, that's so-and-so's friend. And you'll yeah. connect, but you won't connect like on that level. But I remember Lee, Lee Vaughn was like yeah. my, my best friends at the time. And I met, and then we clicked at that time. And it was like, maybe it was, you know, point just like best friends we you know we were at each other's house all the time um it might have been because you had a blue monte carlo jacked up in the front that might have been the reason why, <laughs> that, that might have been the reason why i was using that that monte carlo for friendship um but but help somebody out there that doesn't understand what i'm talking about like when you talk about the the eclectic mix of friends like, oh, yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that and the wide range of friends with the wide range that you have also. Well, I learned <laughs> over time that uh, <laughs> I have a lot of interests. And, you know, some of these interests aren't shared by my entire friendship group, uh, like any of them. So, like, I had to find friends that, like, shared similar interests. Like, when I was into baseball cards, you know, like, my friends weren't into that. So I had to find some. When, like, same with comic books. Same with uh, riding a half pipe, you know, skateboarding and BMXing. Like, I, I had to find uh, friends that could help satisfy those interests. And uh, it's no different now, like uh, with baseball, like none of my friends want to have the kind of baseball conversations 
that I like to have, you know, very in-depth and dorky and heavy on, you know, baseball lore. And it's boring for them. And, you know, like I have a couple of other friends that I've made where I get to have those conversations and I get to scratch that itch. So that's kind of where it comes from. How has that helped you in, I mean, because some people, I don't think that they realize when they have the depth of friendships like you do, it really impacts every aspect of your life. I mean, when you think about, uh, when you think about even in your work, the fact that you have the type of relationship those over the years, how has that positively infect, uh, in, impacted um, your work life? Well, I think that my friendships, uh, you know, from childhood are a, a big part of what fueled me to get to where I am now. You know, when you have a friendship group uh, where you essentially are like brothers, you share a brotherhood, and you're all moving in the same direction, and, you know, everyone is on the ascension, you don't want to be the one that fucks up and isn't moving in the same direction anymore. So I always felt motivated, you know, when we were kids, like, out of high school, you know, you and DeAndre were the first ones that, with real jobs and were making money while we were all broke-ass college students. <laughs> and you guys kind of got things rolling. And, you know, I think that us collectively kind of coming into our adulthood together and supporting each other and pushing each other, um, you know, and kind of being there for our successes, but more importantly, our failures uh, are a huge part of why I've been able to get to where I am. You know, we've all been able to kind of develop this grit and an ability to persevere uh, in ways that I think if we didn't have the friendships that we did, I don't know if I would uh, have that same uh, tenacity or the same level of drive, you know, cause we were never like competitive in that way, but you didn't want to be the one that wasn't doing some shit. Yeah. Now we both share something and like, and I don't think that a lot of people understand when I talk about uh, when I talk about you. Um, again, I don't think that they understand the depth of the relationship. Um, sometimes when I say that you're my brother, um, they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've got a person that's kind of like my brother too." And I'm like, "Nah, it's." I mean, I'm not comparing, although I am comparing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we share something in a big brother and a hero to both of us um, in a guy named Rob. Yeah. What what example? I mean, I, I speak about this guy all the time. And for those of the people on the podcast, they know about my big brother. They, if they listen to the episode uh, with him, it's three hours of us just just going at it. Um, what impact did Rob have on your life growing up? Like just uh, being guidance, you know, and a consistency. Like, he's a dude that, like, you know, usually was doing the right things. And uh, he knew how to get things done. And he had his priorities uh, in the right place. Usually. <laughs> Occasionally, he was like the, the Pied Piper of debauchery. 
<laughs> you know, he uh, would would lead us all to a good time. What a, what yeah. about the killer instinct? Like, you know, that was something for me. It was, and I don't know if this is for you, but like I saw a killer instinct in him uh, from a very early age that uh, really really inspired like really inspired me and made me feel safe um you know because it was that that thing that like that that really pushed me a lot well i mean were there were there impacts like that for you with him uh yeah somewhat but i less so than than you you know because there's a certain big brotherness uh, to your situation where like I'm sure that you were in, you two were in situations where maybe he had to like stick up for you, or you know some things were going sideways and he had to uh, whisk you out of danger. Like we we didn't have those kinds of experiences, but you know I always looked up to him because he was like my big brother, and you know he was always looking out for us. Let's talk about the sports side of it, because you said that you had so many eclectic interests, right? And so, you know, going along that line, um, let's talk about the sports uh, part of it. When did you really start to find your stride? And is baseball, I mean, baseball seems to be your, like, is that your first love? Absolutely. I've always been a baseball junkie. Why? I just love the game. Yeah, the game always resonated with me. I just have always loved it. Uh, I remember when we got cable when I was a kid. Um, we had WGN, that Chicago channel. And this was before the Cubs had lights in their stadium. So they played day games. All their whole home games were during the day. And they were playing uh, in uh, Midwestern time zone. So it was a couple hours ahead. And I would pretend to be sick so I could watch the Cubs all the time. <laughs> You know, so I'd stay home from school and I'd get to watch the Cubs. Yeah, at Wrigley, before they had lights, and they had an awesome team at that time, and that's really where I fell in love with baseball. Andre what, Dawson what? and Ryan Sandberg okay. and Mark Grace, Lonnie Smith, love that team. So what were, were they the players that really solidified it for you? Yeah, it was just the, the team as well, the Cubs, because, like, I also played on the Little League team, the Cubs, as well. So it was like kind of a double, a double whammy. Talk about that, uh, that Cubs team. Oh, man. The, I think it was the 1985 Cubs, the greatest uh, Little League baseball team of all time. <laughs> yeah, why, had, why, wasn't it, hey, why wasn't it in the Little League World Series? That's a great question. It should have been. So, so give me the, the lineup. So you got you to gotta explain the people. You know, paint a picture of this lineup and who the characters were. Oh, it was, it was a murderer's row. Uh, we had uh, Tyrone Vaughn, who uh, I think he played shortstop, and he pitched. And he was just a great baseball player. We had your brother, Rob Cardenas. I, he played third base and uh, pitched as well. And he was an amazing pitcher back in the day. Uh, we had Zach Patterson, who was six foot three as a twelve-year-old, and would regularly <laughs> hit the ball like four hundred feet. It was incredible. You know, I played center field, and you know, I was a little guy, but 
my defense was tight and I was fast. Uh, Levon played uh, right field, and uh, he was not a baseball player at all, but that's okay. He was really good at football. Uh, yeah, it was just a really fun team, and we were dominant. What What is your take on the timers on uh, baseball right now? Because the game is changing. Um, we're going to talk about the NBA here in a bit, but the game is changing. Are you baseball purist, one of the only ones that I know? Like, I mean, when I when when we start talking baseball, like, I, mean, I know a few people, and I I, I was a, a Houston Astros fan back in the day before they, uh, you know, before all the stuff. But I was Alan Ryan fan, Alan Ashby, stuff like that. But from the game before to the game today, as a baseball purist. Is there things that you love and is there things that you would take away? Um, I'm glad that they got rid of the shift. I thought that was such a cheap and lame, like, rule. Like, there should what be is no that? shift. What was the shift? That's when that? they would allow um, the infielders to shift to one side of the field if uh, a pool hitter was up to bat. Okay. So it's basically like, you know, you have more defenders on one side of the field. Oh, like if a left-handed batter was up? Yeah. Okay. So you can't do that anymore? No. Illegal but, uh, As for the, the pitch clock, I think it's a bad rule. Uh, I understand they want to, like, shorten the game and all that stuff, but I'm someone who loves a baseball game. I love a long baseball game. And pitchers – utilize time to their advantage. It's part of the strategy. Throwing over to first base when there's a runner on. Like, I think they're limiting the amount of times you could throw over as well as the pitch clock. And, you know, I, I just don't think it's good. I think that time is part of the game and it can be used as a tool in the strategy. And, you know, like, who cares if some people want to beat traffic, you know, and baseball games, they think gay baseball games are too long. Baseball is awesome. And if it goes four hours, have another beer. <laughs> oh, what? Whoa. What do you wish that more people knew about baseball? Uh, I think that they would, I would want them to understand that it's not just, you know, see uh, ball, hit ball. There's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of nuance. And that's that's the game that I watch. You know, the average fan is just watching a game. And, uh, okay, he, that guy hit the ball and he runs over there. But there's a lot of other things going on. You know, there's the pitcher and catcher, you know, selecting the pitch. Uh, if there's runners on, you know, is the pitcher going to throw over? Is the runner going to steal? Is he taking an extra lead? Are they going to hit and run here? Are they going to bunt a guy over? There's a lot of strategy and a lot of interesting things that are happening within the confines of the game uh, that is fun to watch. But if you don't understand the game, like, you'll never see that. How could a person... So I, w I wish that people could watch what I watch. So how could a person educate themselves so they'd enjoy the game more? Because... There are a lot of people, and this is common, right? This is a common yep. side, is it's slow, 
it's long yep. and there's not a whole bunch going on. If I was that guy, help me to change my mind. Help me to understand like, do or what can I study a little bit if I had the desire to that would make me enjoy the game at a completely different level? I think uh, just have a better understanding of the rules and situational baseball. Situational baseball as in, like, what does the offense do in certain situations? What does the defense do in certain situations? Uh, if there's a runner on first, where's the fielder going to throw the ball to? Like, if you, if you had a better understanding of that level of nuance, it would open up the game to you. Like, you'd know why things were happening. I think a lot of people see things happening, but they don't know the why behind it. And I think if people can make the connection of why, you know, the fielders are throwing to certain bases or why – you know, they're bunning a guy over. Or why in a certain situation they're going to steal guys. I think that that would lead to better engagement and a better fan experience, like as someone who's, like, trying to understand baseball more. Who is your favorite baseball player of all time? And explain to us why. Uh, my favorite baseball player of all time was Bo Jackson, uh, simply because he was arguably the greatest modern athlete of all time. And what he could do on a baseball field was incredible. You know, he had one of the strongest arms ever. He, he ran like a deer. He was a giant human. And he could hit the ball 500 feet. And you would watch him play, and every game you'd do something that would blow your mind. Is, is there anyone in the modern-day game that you see that even has glimpses of what Bo Jackson was doing? No. There's, great, there's definitely guys that are better at baseball than him, for sure, but just, like, as a physical talent, no. What about baseball talent? As far as like when, when you're talking about that, there's people who are better at baseball. Is there is there anyone that sticks out to you today that you're saying that that's going to be an iconic person that my kids are going to be talking about in the future? I think Aaron Judge would be one of them. You know, he has prolific power and he plays for the New York Yankees. But I my favorite right now is Shohei Otani because he's literally the greatest baseball player ever to live. That's like a strong statement. It is, but yeah, there's there's never been an elite baseball player uh, that pitched and can hit the way he can. Like Babe Ruth played uh, at a time when all of his opponents were like five feet tall and 120 pounds, and he was a big fat dude. He dominated, and he pitched as well. But, like, Shohei Otani is playing in the modern game, throws 100 miles an hour, you know, strikes out 300 batters, hits 30 bombs, drives in 100 runs. Like, there's nothing like him. There's never been anything like him. What do you say he's to gonna the be, people he's gonna be the, He's going to make sign the richest contract in the history of baseball, guaranteed next year. And Where it's do you probably going to be between 700 and a billion dollars. 
Really? Seven hundred million to a billion. That's my prediction. Do you think that that's how much uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest concert would cost if you tried to hire them? In a perfect world, they deserve it. <laughs> that's Can how you, much I love them. Uh, I know, I know. Both of us. If, if I had two billion dollars, I'd pay them a billion. If you had two billion dollars, you would pay a, a Tribe Called Quest a billion dollars to do a, a concert. Uh, on demand, whenever I wanted. I, I'm challenging that. Uh, it, it, but it would be it wouldn't just be Tribe Called Quest though. Who would you have? Ultimate concert. The Roots, Tribe, DMX, Rest in Peace, Lil Wayne, Common, Talib Kweli. Uh, I would get NWA back together. Public Enemy, Nas. Busta Rhymes and Leader of the New School. Uh, who else? I want did you say, all did you my say favorite th rappers to do their most iconic album from start to finish. Hmm. And most that actually iconic. happened one time at a concert. Yes. Back in, I think it was like in, in 2012. Okay. Rock the Bells. I had a concert out in uh, DeVore, and everyone did their most iconic album. Wu-Tang and Edge of 36 Chambers. Nas, <laughs> yeah, Nas did his shit. Like, everyone did their their best album from start to finish. So why do you think, okay, so when we started talking, we are talking about, we were talking about De La Soul and this De La Soul Day today, 3-3-23. Hey, Willie, check your connection, too. You're connected on two lines, so you're echoing sometimes. So uh, Just how do we get off two lines? Um, I don't know. Check and see. Check and see on it, but make sure that you stay close to your microphone, too, just because what you're, uh, where you're, your content is so in incredible. So, De La, 1989 is when you showed me the VHS tape and changed my life. They stayed relevant. <laughs> until today right now yeah why is it that hip-hop generally has one album like one hitter quitters like one album and then they and then it falls off why isn't there the longevity like the tribes like the buster rhymes like the uh de laws uh like the roots what is the component that they have that is missing in modern hip-hop originality and love of hip-hop <clears throat> I think today's rap is disposable. I think rappers are disposable. Like, that's why they, it seems like a, a rapper dies every week. A rapper I've never heard of, but like being a rapper is like the most dangerous job in the world because they're dropping like flies. So when you, another when one you, replaces them. When you say disposable, why do you, th what's the components of that? Because when I look at, say, like a De La, when I, when I remember, uh, you know, over the years, people would say, what's your favorite group of all time? Hands down, De La Soul. Okay. And then I would tell them uh, another one of my, they would say, who's your favorite artist? Maxwell. Both people would scratch their heads and be like, what songs do they sing? Give me a song. And it was hard for me to give them a song because most of the songs wouldn't hit the charts. I mean, 
three feet iron rising uh me myself and i people know it but it wasn't this chart topping thing if you talk about the roots people know the roots a lot of people only know the roots today because of jimmy fallon but not because of their incredible music and one of the i think the greatest lyricist of all time in black thought yep so what's the component to having that longevity is it that you have to uh stay true to what you're doing but not get critical mass or i think that you have to build your audience know your audience and stay with your audience i think the rap game today is it's strange like uh all the rap the the formula seems to be repetitive and not very creative uh i call it all mumble rap mumble rappers okay. and uh they really don't have anything to say but what concept for you for okay so let's let's go into that message aspect of it i mean the storytelling really in hip hop changed when rakim hit the scene yeah yeah so he started telling stories as opposed to just making a bunch of words rhyme yeah so let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit and how that switched and but it doesn't seem the hard thing is is you know it seems like people are making records just to sell as opposed to making records that they believe in uh that could go for a lot of industries but yeah but what's the long term effects of this what's the long term effects music crappy music we're experiencing it every day on the radio that's why i don't listen to the radio favorite um de la song of all time Man, that's a tough one. I I would I have several, but Ego Trip is up there. Yeah. It's so easy. You don't want to bust that shit. Why why Ego Trip? I just love the beat. And the fact that they start the song screaming. I was just listening to it this morning and what I love about it is they took all the things even it's so applicable even today so it was made in 1993 like all the flexing all those things they made fun of it <laughs> during that time they yeah. were the first ones in hip hop to not be wearing gold chains and because at the time you remember the OMTV raps yep. for us it was you know chains all over the place it was all the stuff which has come back around today again but they were the first people that weren't wearing that. Yeah. They were unapologetically individual and didn't fear standing out. Sometimes and, that's and that it's amazing because you look at the longevity but it's it's tough because sometimes say well if I that route Right. If I go the route of staying myself, it's going to be a longer road. It's going to cost me a lot more. 
But my encouragement to it is that you're going to be able to look back at your body of work and be proud of that. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100% it does. You will go to bed at night knowing that you created something that's timeless. And you put your heart and soul into it. And you created an audience who loves you and appreciates what you've done. And that, at the end of the day, is what you want as an artist. Well, it's been, you've been that example to me, man. I mean, I, I, it, it's amazing because you not only uh, introduced me to, um, you introduced me to that, to that music, which I didn't think that was going to change as much as it did for me. Um, but it really took me down a lyrical, uh, um, a lyrical appreciation that I never, I never had before. Yeah. Where did your, where did your lyrical, where, where did that happen for you? As far as understand, like really appreciating the stories that we were being told as opposed to just listening to the, maybe the beat and not to say that I don't hear some songs and just absolutely love the beat itself. Well, I think, you know, growing up, I, I loved to write and I would write stories all the time and I have a creative mind and I was always intrigued by lyrics and what people had to say. And I think, uh, you know, you look back at like Slick Rick told amazing stories that you could like envision, like he would spin a tail and you could like see it. You could like, you know, turn on the movie reel in your head and you could envision it. And Rakim was, it was very similar in that way. And it was just, uh, it was refreshing, you know, because you could always bob your head to the beat, but I would always like tune into the lyrics and, and listen to what people had to say. It always, well, I, added more layers and more richness to the music. Well, I do have to rewind a second because I, I think that my, my appetite for uh, storytelling did uh, get touched when we moved to Florida and my parents were separated at the time. My dad uh, went out to work at Kennedy Space Center. We moved out there and I remember showing up and this was maybe 1982, 83, no, maybe 1982, 182. And my dad has a boombox and says, you guys need to listen to this. And he turned on the message by Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> and... It was, I mean, it was, I, I remember it like my dad at the time, because, you know, like he had been there, he had been working out a ton. So he was like, you know, and he's a young dude at the time. So I think I'm in 1982, I'm maybe seven, six, seven years old. And so my dad at the time is like 28. And we sit down and have this crazy experience with Grandmaster Flash. That's wild. So... Tell me about a time where, like, you remember a, a, a an experience with music that really shifted things for you. 
first time I heard, uh, well, there was a couple. Like, the first time I heard uh, Easy E in Too Short. <laughs> like, that's the first time I ever heard bad words on a, like, rap song. And <laughs> it, was, it was like we were breaking the law or something. You know, like, we had to, like, hide, and we we turned it on, a tape deck, and we turned it down real low and put our ear against the speaker because we didn't want any adults to hear, you know, the vulgarity that was about to be displayed. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just remember I, I felt kind of guilty, but I was like, wow, this is this is different. Where were you at the time? Were you on base or were you? Yeah, I was on base. And my sister had the cassette. And, you know, this was all the teenagers were losing their mind over it. And uh, it was like the, the hot thing at the time. And uh, my innocent little ears got turned out. What about the the being raised on a military base and being, you know, a military kid? What impacts and what what positive did you see out of that? Because I see so much positive that came out of the area where we came out of. And, you know, Vandenberg Air Force Base, Longpole, California. I mean, it seemed to be this hotbed for like crazy friendship. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, I've, I've put a lot of thought into this over the years. And, uh, you know, I think what we had was like the embodiment of the results of the old saying, it takes a village. You know, because like, yes, our parents raised us, but like, we were really raised by all of our friends' parents, too, if you think about it. Like, think of all the impacts, like the Barksdales, your parents, my parents, you know, like all the parents on the other side of the base, DeAndre's parents, like, they all had a role. They all had to do a drop-off or pickup of of their kid and everyone else's kids, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it literally is the embodiment of, you know... <laughs> it takes a village. Like literally. So you just mentioned you just mentioned a name. We're gonna come back to it. But give us a a normal day. Like paint the picture. So people can't see you right now, but I mean they're listening. Paint the picture of what a Saturday morning was like for us on the base. It was the best thing ever. Like, you woke up early, you know, you eat some breakfast, you watch some cartoons, and you were out. You're outside looking for your friends. And you'd all meet up and go play basketball or go play baseball or go play football or do whatever. But, you know, there were times when we would amass 40 or 50 kids all doing something together. Kids don't do that anymore on their own, on their own volition. 
how old were we at the time? Started out at age eight. So eight years old, we got cartoons in the morning. We got some sort of cereal. If I'm staying the night at your house, I'm watching you eat the cereal. (laughs) (laughs) Don't Don't act like you never ate. Hey, I got the half a bowl of cereal after you got the cereal. Amen. You you ate for a lot of years. Oh, I sure did. <laughs> I ate a lot of your food. Hey, it's all good. But I, I that's how when people say like um, like people are polite when they have visitors, right? Mm-hmm. They're themselves. They're themselves around family. And I'm not you didn't have uh, cooth. But I'm saying you were never polite to me, meaning that you weren't ever like putting on a show for me. It was just like when I stayed the night at your house, I was your brother. And if you got to the cereal first, then that was that's how it was. Yeah. And when you wanted something, I'd say, go get it yourself. (laughs) Actually, you didn't say it like that, though. (laughs) How did I say it? You said get it your damn self. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> while while you were side hey, while you were side eyeing me in the middle of your bites. You wouldn't right. even stop with, with the with you, the oversized spoon? Yeah, with the oversized spoon and you used to like put the uh, the cereal. You used to put the cereal in one of those bowls that you could never find the lid for. Yeah. Or I'd get one of my mom's mixing bowls. Yes. And melted cheese. Oh, yeah. That was a a ghetto hors d'oeuvre. You'd uh, slice up some some cheddar. (laughs) You'd uh, put it on a paper plate, melt it, and get a couple of toothpicks, one for you and one for your buddy. And it's kind of like fondue. <laughs> Bootleg fondue. That's what it was. How, how have you, as you've gone through your life, how have you been able to stay in touch with you? Because we, we, when we get together, we, we're able to joke, we're able to experience and have so much fun. How have you been to that as opposed to a lot of times when people see a different, they actually... They, they almost disconnect like they, they won't they won't connect with that other part of their life because they're whether it be embarrassment or they think that that's not the right thing to do in their new environment. But you have been able to stay exactly the same and always bring me back to center no matter what. How do you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to do anything different. I've never thought about it. I just live, man. That's how I live my life. It's normal. I don't even think about it. What are some of the coolest things that when we were kids that we were talking about, hey, let's go do this thing or when we because we would always say, I don't know if you remember it, but I do a lot when we would be like, oh, when we're rich, we're going to go and do X. And then we (laughs) because rich to us at that time was like being able to buy a pizza at the uh at the youth center. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we our bar was pretty low, man. <laughs> Keep your standards low, right? That's right. Uh, a wise man once said that. Yeah, that's that's a very wise man. Yep. Why is why? <laughs> but talk about that because there's some there's. It's like I remember when we went to our first playoff game, right? NBA. Yeah. We went, but it was cool because it wasn't like oh we're flexing. It was like I'm sitting next to my best friend since fourth grade. We're chopping it up, and I don't even remember that many plays in that game. I just remember laughing, like my belly hurting the whole time because you were, <laughs> you know, give, giving the business to a couple players uh, that were on the floor that maybe uh, we didn't like their game that much. Yeah, that was that was a great time. You know, man, I think the beauty of you know this this life that we have is that. The, the sweetness, the sweetness of, of our, our lives is in our authenticity. And in genuineness. And that's what happens when we all get together. You know, we're allowed to be our authentic selves. And the feelings between us all and our camaraderie and our brotherhood and our kinship is, is genuine. And, uh, yeah, that's why it's just such a blast spending time with you guys. Because that's when we can truly be uh, like we were when we were kids. It's the same. It's no different. And we're, we're closer to 50 than 40. <laughs> Way closer to 50 than 12. But, you know, that's the feeling that is generated when we get together and it's priceless. Some people don't understand Willie, when I tell them like, you know, Hey, every year, you know, we get together at least once we rent a house and you know, for two, two and a half days. <clears throat> I mean, you can't even really explain it. You yeah. can't even really explain it. Cause it's not, <clears throat> it's not like we're getting together to go on a, skiing trip or what i mean if we do you know if we do something it's bonus but the most magic to me is just hanging out and snapping on each other yep it's the best and you know just like you have like throughout my life i've met people and we're talking and they find out that i have the same friends i've had since i was eight and they can't, they're like, what? You do? They, like, they can't believe it. It's foreign. Like, it's something that they can't even conceptualize. I don't talk to anyone from high school. I don't even have friends from college. How do you have friends from elementary school? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to others, but for me, it's normal. If you think about it, if you wrote, a, if you, wrote you and I out on paper, Okay, and you wrote out our interests on paper, because most yep. people are like, you know, vibe with your tribe. Uh, you know, you got to have common interests. I mean, we have a couple of common interests, but if you yeah. wrote it, we'll probably have more uncommon interests than we have common interests. Absolutely. So why does it work? Why do you and I work then? 
and uh, and when I when I say this as far as context, I mean you and I have been you have been my was in fourth grade. So fourth yeah. grade I was eight years old. I am now four forty eight years old. So we're talking forty years not just friendship, but brother I mean when when everything is when everything goes call you i know if i don't call you ways that you're not gonna say call me for two weeks i know yeah. that when things go well with you and share them with you in a way that i don't have to be protective of something that is great because i think you're going to take advantage of it. even further on I could take every single thing that I own, everything, every single password to it. I could give you every single bit of access to anything that I have. And I'm not saying this much, but I could give you access to that and know that it was safe. But why does, if if you wrote this out on paper, it it, it, you it, you wouldn't really be able to match it. it that wouldn't be yeah. a match. Like, you know, I mean, if we if we were on a if we were on a dating app for friends, you would probably swipe left. <laughs> <laughs> Did that hit a little bit close to home there? Or no, what, what was that? Yeah, That's I mean, hilarious. I wouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? So why does yeah. it work, Willie? Man, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I think that um, it's like we we bring balance to each other. It's like, uh, you know, I have strengths and weaknesses, and it's like your strengths and weaknesses correspond <laughs> with mine. Like, uh, you know, I think that our combination brings my weaknesses up to a, a passable level. And my strengths bring your weaknesses up to a passable level. It's like, it's like Legos, man. Like two Lego pieces fit together, man. That's, I, I don't know. I, I, that's all I can explain it. What, what, uh, <laughs> like, I, I see the strengths in you. I see, I mean, the, the, like I was telling you or introducing you as the most eclectic guy that I know. Um, I see, I mean, there's so many strengths for me that I see in you. Um, there was a basketball court when we were kids, when my mouth overloaded my ass. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I was so glad that your strengths were there for my weaknesses. Um, Amen. You know, so what are some of those things that you see that create the Lego um, pieces? Well, First of all, I always, I mean, I, for me, for me, you, you ground me like nobody else grounds me. Like no matter what I could come off of something that I, I got the opportunity to do, or I got, I got to meet somebody or whatever it was, or got to be in an environment. I got to have a accomplishment in business. And I know I can call you and you're going to be like, Oh dude, that's cool. But how are you? Yeah, that's true. You know, you're going to celebrate it with me. Don't get it wrong. We're going to high five and laugh at it and, you know, stuff like that. But you're always 
you always care more about how I'm doing than you care about what I'm doing. Well, that's and, in the essence what's most important. I don't give a shit yeah. what you do. I don't give a shit what you have. I care about you, my friend and my brother. And that's always going to take precedence and priority over, like, stuff. Stuff is inconsequential. But you, the human, uh, my friend and my brother, you know, are, are always going to be what's important in, in our bond and our, our relationship. And, you know, I'll always keep it real. Like, you know, you can have a Lamborghini and you can have, you know, all kinds of material, material things. And I'm still going to talk shit to you. I'm still going <laughs> to, you know, I'm still going to bring you down to earth when maybe you uh, fly a little too high. And I know that you do the same for me. And that's, you know, what, what honesty and, and being genuine and authentic uh, does in a relationship. Like you can say things that other people can't say to your friend. And it will not be taken in a negative way. You and I both went through something most people will go through. Um, they don't. They don't, but I and that's losing our moms. Yeah. What did you learn through that? Um, that there's no blueprint, <clears throat> no instruction manual, and no guidebook for the grieving process. And that everyone's grieving process is going to be different. And you have to allow them to go through whatever their individual process is. And, uh, yeah, like it, it took me some time to kind of process and, and understand that. You know, because there's a, a host of emotions and you feel all kinds of things. And that's okay. You know, feel those things. Like you basically have to buckle yourself in and take the ride. And whenever it's done and the ride stops, that's when you unbuckle and you get out and you move forward with your life. But, you know, there's no one's ride is going to be the same. You know, some are going to be smoother. Some are going to be scarier. Some are going to go faster and, you know, have higher ups and lower downs. But it's your ride. And, and you have to complete it. What were the and, messages? Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. And, you know, it's, it's something that unless you've lost a parent, you don't fully comprehend. But, you know, when, when people have, have lost a parent, like that's been my advice to them. Because people love to give advice. You know, all the, all the advice we were given about marriage, that was bullshit, about childbirth, that was bullshit. Like, when it comes to losing a parent, like a lot of what we were told was kind of bullshit too. You know, and like, you don't fully understand it until you go through the experience. What was the, what was the whack advice that you heard 
that like, and then anybody out there that's given advice that hasn't lost a parent, I, I, we're not indicting you, but, but what was some of the advice that you got that was like, that, that just doesn't hit. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, this will make you stronger. You're like, it's just, it's not that it's bad advice, but it's just like, not what you need to hear in the moment. And like, what I've learned is just to shut the fuck up when it comes to like people losing a family member. Like I try to listen. I don't try to say too much. And, you know, people mean well and and they want to express their condolences and yeah and that's great but i found that there were times when i just didn't want to hear anything at all what was some of the gold that you uncovered um in in the lessons that your mama taught you um after she passed and i'll give you an example because like when my mom when i lost my mom um it was probably maybe a year, maybe a year, year and a half after, because actually uh, she she died in 2018 and uh, the pandemic happened in 2020 in March. So it was about a year and a half later and, and it became so clear because she used to wake me up every morning mm-hmm. and put me to bed at night and she used to tell me, uh, you're awesome. And then she used to tell me, you're beautiful. And I would resist it because I'd be like, no, I'm handsome, mom. Like, I want you to say I'm handsome. But she would say, you're beautiful, son. And then she would say, you can do anything that you put your mind to, son. And I didn't know what that meant. Like, I, I, it was like one of those things that your mom says over and over again. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're my mom. Yeah, I'm awesome. Yeah, you think I'm awesome because I'm your son. Yeah, you think I'm beautiful because I'm your son. You think I can do anything? You're telling me that? That's what a parent's supposed to say. This is what I was going through my head as a fourth grader, fifth grader, sixth grader. And then it hit after she passed. And I realized that she was saying, you're awesome. Separate yourself from your accomplishments. You are not what you do, which is in a sense what your friendship is to me. She was also saying to me that you're beautiful. Don't ever compare yourself to anybody. And just like we were talking about with De La Soul, being yourself and not wearing the gold chains, making music that your audience loves, and sometimes that audience can just be you, is, yeah. is what's beautiful in the world. And don't compare yourself to anybody. And you have been that example to me. And then the you could do anything that you put your mind to, and, and it empowered me, but I realized what she was saying was, but just because you could do it doesn't make it right. Yeah. And you've been you've been that example in my life of that. And you've been an example of those three things, Willie. Wow. And it didn't hit for me until a year and a half after she left. It's deep. That's what deep, gold, brother. What gold did you uncover after she left that uh, she would always tell me, uh, be mindful of who you surround yourself with. 
and uh, be very selective of who you have as your friend. And when she died, they all showed up. So that was, uh, she was very prophetic. But I always carried those words and I was selective of who I chose to, uh, you know, have bonds with. And I was always very mindful of who I surrounded myself with. And I'm reaping the benefits of those decisions based on her advice. So, you know, I'm blessed every single day. So shout outs to moms. <laughs> and for us crying like little bitches. <laughs> what would you tell her now? Uh, that she's, she did an awesome job as a mom. And that I'm continuing to, you know, kind of carry on her legacy of, you know, uh, aloofness and uh, silliness and fun and laughter and positive relationships and good vibes and bringing the fun and uh, really enjoying life and enjoying people and enjoying experiences and being appreciative of the uniqueness in, in people and places and things and the beauty of it all. Like she... Uh, yeah, she just brings so much color and life to, to everything. And, uh, you know, now that she's gone, you know, I'm still able to, you know, kind of see the world through the lenses that she saw. I don't know if you were, because um, you always seemed like a real confident kid, um, you know, it was, and I don't know if that was something that you always felt, but there was a lot of times where I felt um, fear as a kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it until I was older what that fear was. I just thought, like, this is just the way that life is. Like, you just get, like, your chest gets tight when you get in the car and uh, <laughs> because I thought that every car was on the verge of breaking down. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's wild, man. Well, I, I think, think we've uh, had a, uh, pretty incredible childhoods. It wasn't all fun and games, you know, there's definitely challenges and trauma and ups and downs and failure, success, 
you know, mistakes, stupidity at times, but we always persevered. You know, we always supported each other. And, uh, yeah, man, it's an amazing thing. And it's something that not a lot of people uh, have in their lives. And I think that our, our group collectively is, man, I, I, I'm so lucky. And I think about that every single day. Like, people don't have this. People don't have what we all have. And I'm reminded of that all the time. Did you have fear as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I had I, I, I had anxiety disorder, so I was like on the verge of a panic attack all the time. <laughs> so yeah, I was scared shitless for no reason, regularly. Now looking back, right? So for me, um, uh, looking back on that, and people will ask me all the time, like, what would you do different? I wouldn't do anything different. Yeah, um, you. you know, I still would have asked you to go and water balloon houses. Absolutely. Um, I would have still, um, which is probably the dumbest idea I've had in my entire life. I remember when I learned about a, I don't even know how to say it, but it's the cocktail thing. Oh, the Molotov cocktail? Yeah. Like, what in the hell was I thinking that that would be funny to make and throw in the street? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you were you were prone to some questionable decisions. That's why I, I had no problem with telling you no. <laughs> and I don't even. I remember thinking like, oh no, well, you got you don't understand. All we have to do is put a rag in this bottle, and then light the rag and throw it in the street. Yep. Yeah, that's a, a brilliant idea. Yes, yeah, genius. That's genius. Something you'd be doing by yourself. Yeah, I'll be I'll be reading comics, man. <laughs> I'll be in here opening some baseball cards. <laughs> I'll be playing with my name brand uh, uh, Star Wars set, and right. uh, when when you're done, bring over Han Solo and uh, Leia's cousins. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, but what what if you got a chance to speak to young Willie with that uh, amazing four way box that you used to wear? Uh, yep. Um, what would you tell young Willie? Uh, I would just say you're on the right track. Just keep pushing forward. And that's it. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, because it's all those experiences you know, the good and bad and everything else around that that has forged the person that I am right now. And I'm, I'm content with uh, the human being I'm growing into. And I think I still have room to grow. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm intent on ensuring that the second half of my life is better than the first. And the first half was pretty fucking good. So, you know, I'm, I'm expecting big things.
what about what is the craziest thing that you went through that now you think that you thank God for? And the reason, the thing that I say, I give it some context. Like I remember times of, uh, you know, I was just listening to uh, the podcast with my brother and, you know, he, he started selling now and laters and, you know, <laughs> he, he, and I don't know if you, you heard it, but he, it was a competition thing a little bit because there was this dude that was selling, uh, now and later is on the bus and he was selling for 35 cents. And my brother was like, yo, I could, I could sell them better than he can. You know what I mean? Like I have a better audience. I could do this. And then he's like, and, and you, you hear this killer instinct in him. He's like, and I could sell them for less. So, (laughs) (laughs) and I remember during that time I was like, man, you know, here's this, uh, you know, like, I remember seeing, you know, kids going to Miller's Outpost, getting some Anchor Blues, uh, people going yeah, to yeah. Uh, the the BX, getting whatever they want, getting school clothes that weren't on layaway. And I was like, man, this is awful. But now I think of that and I think, man, I'm so glad that that happened because it created a, a grit that said, you know what? It doesn't matter whatever happens. Um if I still have breath in my lungs, then I've got a shot. Yeah. And I remember that. And then one of the, one of the, uh, a really horrible and scary uh, situation for me was, you know, in 2006, um, I lost my job like in an instant, just from a phone call. Yeah. You know, and it was something that I had been working at for 12 years and you know, it was pretty major at the time. But now I look back at it and I'm like, if that never happened, I wouldn't have started my own company. Um, you know, I wouldn't have seen the things that I've got to see. Now, it's been at the time I would have been like, well, I don't care if I get to see that stuff. I just, I just want my job. Um, what is one of the toughest times in your life that you look back at now and you're like, I'm so happy that that happened? Um, well, what stands out to me is, uh, back in, this was, I want to say it was like maybe 2014, um, I had an opportunity to promote, uh, unfortunately this promotion was at the warehouse, like our logistics operation in my department. And, uh, you know, like the stories about that place were horror stories, like, you know, unruly staff and, you know, a lot of ridiculous things going on. And that was my only shot. And I really didn't want that position. I didn't want to deal with it because of all that I heard about it and the fact that no one wanted to take that job. You know, and I just thought about it for a while, and I was like, you know, like, I just need to take ownership of it and trust that I can make a difference and change the culture and the vibe of the place. And, uh, you know, I got there, and it definitely resembled a lot of the stories that I had heard and was told over the time. 
but that didn't deter me, you know, as a competitive person and someone who doesn't back down from a challenge, you know, I, I definitely poured myself into that environment and tried to connect with the staff and ultimately, you know, after two and a half years of, of running that logistics operation, you know, I, I know now that it was what I was able to do at that place in changing the culture and just making it a more effective and efficient operation from top to bottom that set the groundwork for where I am right now and being in a position to, to make another move up to the executive level. So, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, beating myself up uh, in coming to the decision of taking that job at the warehouse. But looking back on it, it was definitely well worth, you know, the struggle. And there was some struggle. But ultimately, you know, I was able to win the staff over and really uh, make a difference there. So how can a person like it's, it's amazing because I watch you and your your success in your work. And I mean, some people are blown away at the, the culture in which you have you have created. To me, it's no surprise. Right. And to quote uh, Nate Diaz, like, <laughs> I'm not surprised because <laughs> but I'm not going to say the other word, but <laughs> like. I'm not surprised because it's exactly who you are. But how can a person, let's go, I mean, how can a person develop this kind of stuff? Because everyone who's listening is, is so inspired by you. But what you're saying is the way that you were able to build it is by making friends since you were in fourth grade. What if I don't have that? What if that's not my reality? I think that being an effective communicator and meeting people where they're at. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have to um, be relatable. You know, you need to find a, a means of communication that, you know, each individual can receive. And I made it a point to develop a relationship with every single person that worked in that warehouse. And not everyone liked me, you know, some people didn't, but I still worked on developing a relationship, you know, cause at minimum, like you didn't have to like me, but we were going to have mutual, mutual respect and being able to communicate with people, meet people where they're at and, uh, you know, find, an appropriate means for them to receive your message, you know, cause you can just get up in front of a crowd and, and talk at people, but you know, what's going to make you effective and getting your message across is you need to be able to be relatable, you know, to a, a wide swath of individuals. And when you deal with people on an individual basis and listen, I think that's where you develop the skill of, of being able to, you know, meet people where they're at and communicate in a way that they can receive. How can you foster that type of, I mean, because 
like we'll, we'll hear this, you know, you need to learn how to listen and you need to, you know, learn how to communicate all those things. But again, what about a person who doesn't have, right. If I want to make a cake and mm-hmm. I, I like the type of cake you have, right. I've got a, and I want the exact cake that you have. I've got a, a couple things, right. I got to evaluate what the cake is. Then yeah. I got to go get the ingredients and then I got to follow the recipe. Right. Right. But if I like I like the cake you have and I'm like, you know what, I can just kind of make my own thing um, when I'm looking at it with you and the depth of the relationships, where can a person start now for that person who says, like, you're almost a freak of nature that you have friends since you were in fourth grade, fifth grade. How can I start now? Will I'm 35, I'm 45, I'm 55. I don't have 45. 40 years because I'm going to be 95. I'm 55 years old right now. And I'm listening to this. I'm going to be 95. This, this, like how, how can I, what can I do today to get me on that road? Uh, You have to nurture the relationships that are important to you. You know, there's no timetable or expiration date on developing positive relationships. You know, that can be started at any time and at any age. And you start with those nearest to you. What are some of the things, like, what are some of the things that, you know. Be an active listener. Like, truly engage and listen to what people have to say. What if you're not interested in what they're saying? Well, then you have to make a decision. Then if you're not interested in what people have to say, then you're not serious about developing positive relationships. And I think you need to reevaluate what your intent is. There we go. Man. That's really what it comes down to. You know, that's a a huge part of developing long-lasting positive relationships. What about the people that say, like, this is not, uh, you know, it, it's strictly business. Well, and I have to take my personal out of that. Okay. Well, you're not going to be very good. Because I take my personal into every single thing that I do. Literally. Like the same person that's talking to you on this podcast is the same person that oversees a IT budget for a giant department is the same person that goes to my kids' soccer games. It's the same kid that's talking to the clerk at the grocery store. Hmm. It's incredible to be able to see the consistency, Willie. And when you brought up business, like people, I'm I'm all business. Well, (laughs) what what is a business? It's a relationship between one entity and customers or potential customers. That's a relationship. How do you strengthen or deepen a relationship? You make it personal. 
<laughs> yeah. You, you can't remove the personal from a relationship because then you don't have a relationship. You may have an arrangement. You may have a, an acquaintance. But that's not a relationship. It's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go much further than that. It'll be transactional in nature, and there won't be anything else exchanged other than, like, goods or services. Wow. What are some of the lessons? I mean, you get, you're, you're a very, uh, very, very fortunate guy because you get a chance to spend a lot of time with your pop. Oh, yeah. And your pop is, I mean, just the wisdom from that man, but the comedy from that man, <laughs> the, 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 um, and it's not like he's trying to make a joke hit. He'll just drop it on you and just move on and leave yep. you laughing, leave you thinking. What are some of the lessons that your pop has uh, has shared with you and that that is that has helped to shape you as a man uh consistency that's been his greatest lesson he's been the most consistent person i've ever known like he says things and he does exactly what he says he's always on time He's always where he needs to be. He's always doing what he needs to do. It's like he's... Like, that's the level of his consistency. And I just have so much respect for, for that man because, like, you know, he's worked so hard his entire life. And, you know, he consistently, like supported his family and supported his <laughs> he had to feed like 20 kids he wasn't just feeding my ass you know like he had to work hard because he was feeding the neighborhood i believe that was a dig there will uh, that was i was in that group yep yep it's yep, all good yep. like but like that's how we rolled like you know, we were not just feeding us. We were feeding everyone because everyone was at our house. And if you're at our house, we're not going to eat in front of you and then let you watch. You're going to eat too. Willie, what is your vanilla bean ice cream and uh, peanut M&M's <laughs> as a dad? But explain the concept first and then... What is what are what are those for you as a dad? You know what? I don't I don't have them. So my dad used to love Oreo cookies and Dryer's ice cream, and I would always eat it all, and he'd get so mad. <laughs> so he was like, "You know what? I'm gonna go off brand," and I know that he was not gonna eat it. So he bought Hydrox cookies. They were like the <laughs> off-brand Oreos. It sounds like a chemical or a poison, right? Hydrox. Pour some Hydrox on that anthill. <laughs> <laughs> It'll kill him. It'll kill all the ants. <sighs> and then he uh, would get crushed vanilla bean ice cream, and it wasn't Dryers. 
it was Briars. <laughs> and at that time, Briars was like a knockoff bootleg. So, yeah, it was like kid repellent, and I never touched that stuff. And uh, he got to eat it to his heart's content. And, uh, you know, as a dad now, uh, I don't do that. I don't, I don't have my version of Hydrox and Briars crushed vanilla bean ice cream. You know, like <laughs> my kids like, like to eat the same stuff I do. And sometimes they're a little fast, a little quicker on the draw than I am. And I come up short, <laughs> but it's a race and I'm in it. I'm in that race. So with your pop, like, uh, I'll give some context to this. Like, there's there's one thing that I aspire to um, with my kids. And a lot, like, a lot of people will be like, I aspire, like, I'm going to make sure that my kids, you know, um, never have to want for anything. And I, that's a great thing. It's honorable, all that stuff. And maybe people are going to think I'm a bad dad because of this. The one thing that I aspire to with my kids and – I don't want to tell them because they will, I want it to happen organically because I think these things kind of have to happen organically. Um, I someday, and that's not the actual word, but someday I want to have a moniker like my dad had when we called him pops. Because he was, he was pops to me. Like he was pops. Like, and Pops would say, and he would start it with, hey, boy, you need to do this. And you know how he would talk to us. Oh, yeah. And he would be saying the same thing over and over again and, you know, giving us life lessons, having us – remember him, him uh, with a football, having you grab the football? Yep. Uh, but I that's, – that's what I aspire is that – and when I say it, I don't know if I – that I have to have my kids to call me Pops, but I want to have something that's signature – that my kids call me, my dad organically became Pops, and then he organically became Kempa. You know what I'm saying? Yep. What is your aspiration with your kids for you like that? Um, just to, you know, uh, be able to uh, have a similar level of consistency that my dad had. You know, he was just a, a dude that was like, a pillar, you know, he was a strong dude that was always there. And, uh, I, I definitely, uh, appreciate that so much. Um, and I want to definitely, hopefully, uh, kind of be that for my kids, not kind of, but be that for my kids, you know, be that consistent, a presence, you know, throughout their life. Absolutely. So Willie, I started the podcast because of my kids, Maddox and McKenna, who you know, and I mean, you're their uncle, Uncle Willie. Um, and I wanted to take iconic figures and uh, help them to realize that there was no idols in life. And you're the example of that. Not only you don't have people worship you, but you are a consistent and one of the most consistent people in that it's not about what people do, it's who they are. And I wanted to show them that there wasn't idols, that you shouldn't worship people, that you should, they can be iconic in your life and you can be inspired by them. 
Um, but they're just people. And when you love them, as opposed to what they do, it changes things. So what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna? And if you could use both their names, that would be awesome. Absolutely. Well, my advice to Maddox and McKenna would just be simply to trust in who you are and be true to yourself. And I would also tell them to be mindful of who they surround themselves with and be very selective of who they choose as their friends. Because if you choose wisely, you will literally have friendship for life. And uh, I live that. I know it to be true. Because I, I literally live it every single day. Willie, it has been a pleasure. Um, and I'm glad that De La Soul Day um, inspired this. But, like, it's just another reason to talk to you. Oh, man. <laughs> For me. Good. You know well, what I mean? Whatever, whatever excuse. That's all good, man. Not that we need one. But, no, this has been a fun uh, chat, man. I appreciate the, the, the depth of the conversation. It was a very wide-ranging uh, talk that we had. Touched on a lot of things. Got deep. Well, that's who Got you emotional. are, though. <laughs> and that's who you are. That's the funny thing is, like, when I, and to, to explain you to people, it's like, they'll be like, oh, so what did you talk about? Well, we talked about the NBA. We talked about MLB. We talked about hip-hop. We talked about, I mean, and it's just all across the board. And that's what my friendship has been with you. And that's why it's so not... I mean, that's one of the million reasons why it's so great to have you as my brother. Well, I thank you, man. And the feelings are mutual. It's, uh, I had this professor in, in college for operations management. And he always talked about adding value to like anything that you do. And he would always say, even if you're flipping burgers, you can add value to the customer. And uh, like, for whatever reason, that always stuck with me. And, you know, I want to add value to every interaction that I have, you know, whether it be with my family or friends or my kids or, you know, people in line at the grocery store. Like I'm, I'm always trying to add value to my interactions with other people, you know, I want it to be not just this, you know, two random people kind of, you know, I want, I want there to be like some kind of exchange and I want to be able to add value to like that moment in some form or fashion. And, uh, it's, it's, it makes life interesting and, you know, like people walk away saying, oh, that was an interesting random conversation I had with some random black dude <laughs> at, the, at the gas station or whatever. It's, I don't know, man. Makes life more interesting. Well, well you, you make it a hell of a lot more interesting than, uh, and you, you keep me laughing all the time. And I, I want to have you on uh, more and more. Um, well, I would love to, man. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to do one. We'll do one. Uh, video we did this audio and 
for all of you listening, um, this is what I've wanted to share with all of you for since I started the podcast too. I've been talking with Willie about it. And I mean, this conversation happens on a drive to LA and, and if for him and I, the, the, the flow that we have, it doesn't have to be set. It doesn't have to be prepared for because we've prepared for this for 40 years. That's right. um, It's amazing because it's, it can't be replicated because of that aspect. And for me, you guys out there listening, I want to thank every one of you for helping us to be in the top 1% uh, of all podcasts globally, which I mean, Will doesn't care at all about that. Um, <laughs> he still he still will make fun of me about it. He'll be like, yeah, but there's like 3 million podcasts, so that's still only 30,000. Um, so keep me humble always, but I want to thank every one of you. I want to thank you guys for sharing, um, for watching, for listening, and, you know, for riding with us through this project. And, um, you know, for all of our sponsors, click the links, do all the things that you know you need to do. Finley Volvo Cars of Las Vegas, Chris Noggle, check them out, um, do the things. But for me, the podcast, for my life, for the salons that we once owned, that we sold, every bit of it was exactly what, uh, what Willie has been talking about, has been relationship. And Will, I just love the fact that you brought it back to the fact that if in business you aren't focused on the relationship, then it just becomes a transaction and that transaction is temporary. And, uh, you know, you are an inspiration to me, man, every single day of my life, whether I talk to you or I don't. Um, and uh, I just, I, I love you uh, more than you'll ever know, my man. Well, I thank you, brother. I definitely thank you. Yeah, this has been awesome. We definitely need to do it more often, man. But uh, yeah, your friendship is, is priceless, my man. And uh, it's been a heck of a ride. And I just can't wait to see all of the, uh, you know, fun and amazing stuff that we get to experience and accomplish going forward, man. I'm, I'm really, really feeling good about uh, this uh, back nine on the golf course of life that we are uh, about to embark on. And uh, back uh, nine that, is going to be epic, man. Well, that that back nine will keep me swinging just like Charles Barkley, um, <laughs> because uh, my golf swing, as Will let me know the last time, I looked like an eighty-five-year-old woman on the course. So oh, thank you for that, yes. Will. You are very welcome, man. I love you so much, and uh, yeah, I just appreciate you. And you know, I I, I do uh, serve as kind of the agent of humility for you. But man, just know that I'm so proud of what you've accomplished and uh, the, the the person you've grown into and the, and the man that you are, the father that you are, the husband, the friend that you are, man. I appreciate you, my brother. And you are officially off the hot seat. Sweet. Sweet.